we're going to start just a little bit different today. I have two sermons. I'm going to sit for one and stand for the other. That might be a reflection of my age. I'm not quite sure. But I'm going to sit right here and just want to talk through a few things with all of us together as a church family. I don't want to assume that we understand. um, I don't want to assume that uh, you're aware of the big picture about what's going on in Israel. I actually go home uh, after work and I turn on the TV because I want to see what's happening. Do you guys do that right now? What's happening right now? And it's amazing how fine we can see. We know how many missiles are being launched. We know how many hostages. We know when they're released. A couple weeks ago in our newsletter, I uh, there was a, put a little article in there, a little document about we are at war. And I tried to give you a short modern history of the nation of Israel, starting in 1948, and then uh, some significant events in Israel's history in 67 and 73, the Six-Day War and the Yom Kippur War. And from that article, there were two things that are very clear in Israel's modern history. They're always at war, and prevailing is the norm. So now I want to go all the way back. 4,000 years, and then go way up to look down on the big picture of why those two things are always the case. So I want to go back 4,000 years to Genesis chapter 12, when God speaks to a man named Abram, and he says this, he says, go forth from your country and from your relatives and from your father's house to the land which I will show you. And I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you, and I will make your name great, and so you shall be a blessing. And I will bless those who bless you, and those who curse you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. Now you notice on the sides we still have the word blessed because we went through a series months and months ago now that was kind of birthed out of this passage as we're wrapped up in Abraham to be blessed and to be a blessing. But I just want you to notice the obvious we see that God speaks very clearly to Abraham, and he actually made a choice to speak to Abraham. Why did God choose to speak to Abraham at that time? We don't know. He was way over in uh, Ur of Chaldees, which is way over in Iraq, modern-day Iraq now. And he says, I'm going to do something with you, so you need to get up because I'm going to take you to another land, and I'm I'm choosing Abram to bless you. Was it because Abraham was so amazing? No, it's just God made a sovereign choice. He's going to choose Abram. We may move forward a little bit more. Abraham was kind of overwhelmed by that, and so he didn't know that was really going to happen. So we go to Genesis chapter 15, and God does this amazing thing with Abraham, and there's this very symbolic stuff about this covenant that God's going to make with this one man. And it came about when the sun had set that it was very dark, and behold, there appeared a smoking oven and a flaming torch which passed between these pieces. This was the way... The way, the ancient way they made covenants, they killed animals and split them apart and walked through them. On that day, the Lord made a covenant, that's an important word, a covenant with Abraham saying to your descendants, not just Abram, but now to your descendants, I'm going to, I have given this land. And then there's a very brief description of the land um, from the river of Egypt as far as the great river, the river Euphrates. I don't know if you know your geography very well. The river Euphrates is way over in Iraq, and the river of Egypt is in Egypt. 
So it's like God reaffirms this promise to Abraham, says, I have something special planned for you and your descendants, and it has to do with a land that I'm going to give to you. So let's talk about his descendants then. God made a promise uh, to Abraham and not just to Sa- and even to Sarah, I'm going to give you a son. You guys know that story, like that took a long time to happen. So let's go to the next passage. Now there was a famine in the land, besides the previous one that had occurred in the days of Abraham. So Isaac, that's Abram's son, okay, went to Gagar to Abimelech, the king of Philistines. The Lord appeared to him, that's to Isaac, and said, don't go to Egypt, stay in the land which I shall tell you. He says, sojourn in this land, and I will be with you, and I will what? Say it. Bless you. So you see these two things now spoken to Isaac. There's a land, and there's a blessing. And I will establish the oath which I swore to my father Abraham. We just saw that. He made a covenant with Abraham. And I will multiply your descendants as far as the stars of heaven. And I will give your descendants all these lands. And by your descendants, all the nations of the earth shall be what? Blessed, right? And so we see that God is now continuing to speak very clearly, not just Abram, but now the descendants that he made a promise to Abraham about, that I'm going to bless you. And you're actually going to be a blessing to the whole world and And let me just say quickly, the ultimate blessing that came through Abraham's descendants is who? Is Jesus. That's the big blessing that we've all benefited from, right? So then, what about Isaac's descendants? Let's go to the next passage. Now, it's Jacob. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, right? Jacob had a dream, and behold, the Lord stood above it and said, I am the Lord, the God of your father, who? Abraham and his son Isaac, uh, the land on which you lie, I will give to you and to your descendants. Your descendants will also be like the dust of the earth, and you will spread out to the west and to the east and the north and the south. And in you, all the descendants, all shall, shall all the families of the earth be, what? Blessed. I think, again, we keep seeing this foreshadowing of this great one that's going to come that's going to bless all the world. Behold, I am with you, and will keep you wherever you go and will bring you back to this land for I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised to you. So you see the theme here, right? God made a promise to Abraham about a blessing and a land. And then he speaks that same idea to Isaac about a blessing and a land. And then he says it to Jacob, a blessing and a land. Now Jacob's name was then changed to what? Israel. All right, see where I'm going here now? All right, descendants of Abraham, the descendants of Isaac, descendants of Jacob, that is the modern day people of Israel, the Jewish people. So when we pan way back to 4,000 years and we look at what's happened in our television screens or on our phones, we recognize this is all about a promise spoken by God. It's all about a, a choice that God made to do something through one particular person and his descendants. Why did God choose Abraham? And the answer is... We don't know, but he did. Why did God choose a particular land? We don't know, but he did. And again, I'll just state that the land that God promised to Abraham was much larger than what we see Israel is today. It's just much larger. I don't know what ultimately that's going to mean, but the promise that God made, and God always keeps his promises, that this will be your land. Now, there's a piece of the story, I'm sure that you're aware that it's in there, that Abram had another son through another woman. The woman's name was Hagar. You remember God made a promise to Abraham 
and Assyria are going to have a son. They got a little impatient, said, well, we're going to try it another way. So they actually disobeyed, and uh, Sarah gave Hagar, her servant, to Abraham to bear a son. So he had another son before he had the son Isaac, 13 years before. Let's look at that story. What happened to Hagar? Well, before you read what's on the screen, um, so ladies, you can imagine, this is a little bit of a problem, right? <laughs> so my husband now had sex with this woman. She's got a child. I don't, like, we don't like each other, and we don't know all that went on. But in the end, Abraham says, Hagar, you need to leave. You just need to go. So she left. But the Lord met her, actually, and the angel of the Lord said to her, that's Hagar, return to your mistress, that's Sarah, submit yourself to her authority. Moreover, the angel of the Lord said to her, I will greatly multiply your descendants so that they will be too many to count. And the angel of the Lord said to her further, behold, you are with child and you shall bear a son and shall call his name, everybody say that, Ishmael, because the Lord has given heed to your affliction. Notice this, he will be a wild donkey of a man. His hand will be against everyone and everyone's hand will be against him and he will live to the east of his brother's. Interesting. So there's this prophetic word that God, uh, through the angel of the Lord, maybe God himself, speaks to Hagar and says, yeah, you're going to have a, a son. And all of your descendants are going to be very multiplied around the world, but there's going to be this uh, tension. Now, there's lots of speculation, a wild donkey of a man, what that means, living in isolation or being aggressive or whatever you think it might mean. But it's not necessarily a positive statement. One more passage, then we'll wrap up. So we look on then, and so the scripture gives us details. These are the sons of Ishmael, and these are their names by their villages and by their camps. Twelve princes. I find that very interesting. Twelve. Twelve princes according to their tribes. These are the years of the life of Ishmael, 137 years, and he breathed his last, and he died and was gathered to his people, and they settled from Havilah to Shur, which is east of Egypt, as one goes, goes towards Assyria. He settled in defiance of all of his relatives. So here's what we need to keep in mind. When you go home this afternoon and you find out all the details are going on, step back a little bit and go back 4,000 years and go way up and look down on it and understand what we're seeing on our screens started 4,000 years ago. When God made a sovereign choice of a particular people to be in a particular land. And when God moves, there's resistance to it, right? Uh, in the spiritual realm, there's resistance. When God makes a choice, there's resistance to that. So what we're seeing now, the, the, the descendants of Ishmael, to say it in, in general terms, are basically the Arab people, all right? They're those in Gaza. They're those in the West Bank. They're those all around them in Syria, Lebanon, Egypt. So at this point in our history, we sit in a place where we recognize God made a promise to a particular people to do something significant through them in giving them a land. Now, fast forward, what is this going to look like? It's not going to get any better as far as people being against Israel. 
But I believe, I hope you do as well, God will always keep his promises. Can you say amen to that? Now, I don't ultimately know what the time frame for that is, but I believe that there will be a point where God says, enough, these are my people, this is their land, and he'll end it in some way. Again, this is not a time frame. I'm not giving you a clock to start. I just don't understand. According to Scripture, I believe that's where we're going. So what should we do in the meantime? Number one, pray. What do we pray? I want us to be praying. You know, scripture says pray for the peace of Jerusalem. That's a great prayer. That's rarely happened <laughs> over the decades. Uh, but I want to pray that the ultimate blessing that God is going to give through the Jewish people is made known more fully in the midst of this. That God's people, God's chosen people, will recognize the ultimate blessing that has come from them, and that is their Messiah, Jesus. There are Christians in Israel. There are Christians in Gaza that can share the gospel. And as things get more and more difficult, I believe the gospel uh, rests on more fertile or receptive hearts. So can we pray to that end? I want to encourage you to pray daily towards that. And I want to encourage you to give towards those organizations, those Christian organizations that are continuing to take the gospel into Israel, that Israel could be saved in more than just a physical way, but in a spiritual way. Amen? Let's pray about that right now. Father God, we are so thankful today that you are the God of the universe, that you are God from the beginning to the end. There was no beginning with you, there's no end with you, and we're stuck right here in this moment in time trying to make sense of all that you've planned. We confess again that we know you're good, we know that you're just, we know that you're loving, we know that you're righteous, we know that you're holy in a sense that you're above it all and yet aware of it all. So because we confess who you are, we pray that you would work specifically in powerful ways in the midst of the crisis that is in that little piece of land that is yours. Praying that Jesus would be made known. That right now you would empower believers in those areas to be strong and courageous. Missionaries that are there, just workers that are... Lord, I pray that the tourists that are there right now would be strong and courageous and speak boldly of their Savior, Jesus. That, Father, however long this plays out, I pray that more and more people would come to faith in Jesus and you would be glorified in even greater ways until you return, until you say it's done and you move us in to all that is eternal. And we pray this always in Jesus' name. Can you say amen to that? like I should start over because this is how I usually start. Hey, my name's Brent. I'm one of the pastors here, and we're in the book of Romans. Before we get into there, just one more reminder. Church 101 is this next Sunday, all right? If you're newish with us and you want to know what it means to be fully committed here in our church family, we encourage attending Church 101. We're going to feed you a really great meal. 
We're just going to have a fun time together sharing about the history, the mission, and the structure of our church family so you can fully engage if God wants you here in this place. I'll just say one more time that uh, uh, whether the time is short or not, we don't have time just to kind of meander through our Christian life, all right? So you need to determine if this is your church family, engage and help us in the mission God has called us to. If it's not, God bless you, find that church family and be committed so they can do their part in the mission. Please understand the heart that I say that with. I read an interesting story about a pastor who pastored for many years in a rural community and he was home one afternoon, he was going through some closets and, and he went into this closet and he found way back in the back of this closet this wooden box. He'd never seen it before, so he pulled it and I looked at it, and it was interesting, there were two eggs and $200 in it. So when his wife came home, he says, so what's this box all about? And she kind of smirks, yeah, I thought you might find that box someday. He says, well, you've been pastoring for many years, and, and every time you preach a bad sermon, I put an egg in the box. He's thinking, wow. Twenty years. This is, I've been preaching twenty years. I only got two eggs in the box. He was feeling pretty good about himself. But they said, "Well, what's the two hundred dollars about?" And she said, kind of shyly, "Well, whenever I collected a dozen eggs, I would sell them and put the money in the box." <laughs> I don't know if this is an egg sermon or not. I know that the passage we're going to cover is an amazing text that I hope you will grasp the amazing truth that is there. Last week, Pastor Scott did a phenomenal job kind of moving us into this transitioning from this idea of justification. Now, what does that mean in sanctification? He talked about what those two words are about. I left encouraged, and I just want to again show you Scott's text. This is Romans 6, 1 through 7. What shall we say then? Are we continuing sin so that grace may increase? And the answer is no, right? May it never be. And then the text ends with this statement, for he who has died is free from sin. So we don't go on sinning because we've died and we're free from sin. And then in between that was all this beautiful truth about really the depth of what we need to understand about what Jesus really did for us, the immensity of the work of Christ on the cross. We learned that Christ's death, burial, and resurrection does not just secure our forgiveness, and it even doesn't just then extend to us the righteousness of Christ. It literally and actually makes us brand new people. The old person we were before we came to Christ is now dead. There's a new person in us now. And Scott did a great job just fleshing that out in very practical ways. There was that phrase baptized, not talking about being baptized in water, but being baptized, immersed completely in Jesus. So what that then means is we are immersed into his death. We died. The old person we were, the, the person in Adam died, and then we are immersed into his resurrection, so we're brand new. There's a new life in us. The old self was crucified with Jesus, and then as Jesus rose from the dead, that then allows us in him to be alive in Jesus Christ. That's what we covered last week.
So we're going to continue in that, starting in verse 8. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him. Knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, is never to die again, death no longer is master over him. For the death that he died, he died to sin once for all, but the life that he lives, he lives to God. Verse 11, even so, consider yourselves to be dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its lust. And do not go on presenting the members of your body to sin as instruments of unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. For sin shall not be master over you, for you are not under law, but under grace. That text breaks down very easily this way. The what in verses 8 through 10, which is a review of what Scott covered last week. The so what, this is a part I love. So what are we going to do about that? What should we do about that? And then it ends with a what then. So what as we continue on, what should we learn? I'm going to pray one more time. Father God, please help us understand this text by your Holy Spirit because it's critical to us moving ahead and finding the victory that you've won for us through Jesus. So open ears, open hearts, calm us, keep the distractions away. Give me good words that will be helpful to that end in Jesus. Amen. So 8, 9, and 10 is the what. I'm going to read it again. Now if we have died with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him, knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, is never to die again. Death no longer is master over him. For the death that he died, he died to sin once for all, but the life he lives, he lives to God. You notice that it begins with now. In other words, he's saying, all that I just wrote, now... Let me say it again, or let me summarize it. It's like he's reviewing and summarizing, again, Pastor Scott's message, message from last week. It seems that he realizes that this truth of all that Jesus did for us, this idea of being baptized into Jesus, is like this huge idea that's hard to comprehend, so he comes back to it again. He says, Jesus died physically. And Jesus rose from the dead physically. Now, to everybody, that's a historic reality. But for those of us in Jesus, that's a spiritual reality. That's a spiritual truth that impacts us. It's not just something we know historically. It's something that is transformative in our lives spiritually. So verse 8 says, we have died with Christ. Now, obviously, we're all still here alive physically, right? So what does that mean? It means the old man that we were before we came to Christ, he's saying now has died. He's died. That old person is dead. Now, the Apostle Paul states this in a very personal way when he writes the church of Galatia. Notice this in Galatians 2, he says, I have been what? Crucified with Christ. He's using a different term because the crucifixion led to the death of Jesus. And 
he says, I was crucified. At that moment, again, something that happened previously is applied to the Apostle Paul now in time. And the same for us. Jesus was, was crucified 2,000 years ago. But now us in this very beautiful spiritual truth, we were crucified with him, the old self, at that moment. But of course, Jesus didn't remain dead. That's the rest of the story. So it goes on again in verse 8. We believe that we shall also live with him, knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, is never to die again. So of course, he died and was buried, and he then was there in the grave, but then he rose again. Now, this text shouldn't be understand, shouldn't be understood that someday in the future, when we're resurrected, we will live with him. While that is true, the point of this text is right now, our new life is living with Jesus because of his resurrection. This is the huge reality that the Apostle Paul is laboring to communicate because it's essential to the growth that God desires for us in Christ. The resurrection of Jesus is impacting us right now because through the resurrection, we have a new spiritual reality. When Jesus rose from the dead physically, he had a new physical reality. It wasn't the same body. And the same then is true for us in the spiritual. When he rose from the dead, that then guarantees for us when we're saved or born again, we have a new spiritual reality, a new spiritual being. So again, Galatians 2.20 goes on to say, I have been crucified with Christ, and it's no longer I who live. And you're saying, well, wait a minute. I, I'm, I'm living in the body. Again, he's saying, understand, it's really not you living in you anymore. It's Jesus Christ. Isn't that what it says? I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live but Christ lives in me, and the life which I now live in the flesh, my physical reality, I live by faith in the Son of God. I won't put it up on the screen, but the church at Colossae, the Apostle Paul says it this way. He says in Colossians 3, 3, 3, for you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. Understand that feel like I just need to say it over and over again because the Apostle Paul is saying it over and over again. When Jesus Christ died on the cross, what happened to the old man that you used to be? You died then. And when he rose from the dead, there's a new life then that you are now. And I realize that happened 2,000 years ago, but this is a spiritual reality that is not hindered by time. So that is the what. This is the very important what that we need to grasp. It is the what that if I could put it in all caps and bold and underline it with exclamation marks, understanding this is critical to our lives. Now here's what, here's, here's what I, I think maybe the problem is in my life, maybe yours as well. I dare say that each and every one of us in some way minimizes what Jesus Christ has accomplished for us. I don't think any of us have fully grasped and experienced and even lived out, and we're going to see that this is true for the Apostle Paul as well, 
the immensity of what Jesus Christ has accomplished for us. And, and maybe we don't fully recognize it until we see him face to face and recognize his glory face to face. And yet, let me say this, the harsh reality, here's what we need to grasp. Each of our lives as followers of Jesus rises to the level of our understanding of all that Jesus has done for us. The muchness of Jesus. Again, our spiritual lives rise to the level of our understanding and accepting of all that Jesus Christ has accomplished for us in his death, his burial, and his resurrection. So we begin to understand we're not just forgiven, there's more, amen? It's not just that we have the righteousness of Christ, there is more. It's not just that we're filled with the Spirit, there is more. It's not just that we're seated with Christ in the heavenlies, there is more. The more is the old self is dead and the new person has been birthed in us. And it's Jesus in us then that is moving us ahead in our spiritual lives. The very amazing little book called The Incredible Christian, How Heaven's Children Live on the Earth by A.W. Tozer. An amazing quote out of that book. He says, it is disheartening to those who care and surely a great grief to the spirit to see how many Christians are content to settle for less than the best. Personally, I have for years carried a burden of sorrow as I have moved among evangelical Christians, that's us, who somewhere in their past have managed to strike a base compromise with their heart's holier longings and have settled down to a lukewarm, mediocre kind of Christianity, utterly unworthy of themselves, now here's the key, and of the Lord they claim to serve. He said that well. We've settled for some sort of a spiritual experience that is far less than what God has intended and far less than what is able that has been accomplished by Jesus in his death, burial, and resurrection. So then the question I ask as I come out of that wonderful portion of Scripture is, so what do, what do I do about this then? I'm glad you asked that question, because that's where we're going next. This is the so what portion of the Scripture. The Apostle Paul comes down out of this wonderful theology to the practical implications. He comes from like, orthodoxy to orthopraxy. How do we practice this? How do we live this out? And there are four very straight imperatives that he says, okay, because all of that is true, here's the so what. I highlight them on the screen. There's four imperatives, four commands then that we move towards because of the reality of what Jesus has done for us. Here's the first one, verse 11. Even so, consider yourselves to be dead to sin, but alive to God and Jesus Christ, or Christ Jesus. The word consider, it's a beautiful word we lose so much in this translation. It's a secular accounting term. It meant to make an entry into account or to put into a ledger. It implies that in accounting or with money, you actually there's this money that is credited to or put into this account, and it's really there. 
and you know it's really there because it's been written down and you can see it's there. Something is actually written down. Now, in those days, it would have been written down on parchment or some sort of scroll. Today, we write those digital things or those accounting things down in digi digital form or physical form. But you can go back to it. And you can see it is really there. That money has been credited to my account. It's really there. I can bank on it. I can spend it because it's really there. So then, if you were to put $100,000 in my account, and please do, I could see that it was there because it's written down, that money is my account, and then I can live based on what is there. Does that make sense? Now, it's, it's not, I'm not pretending it's there. You just didn't say it was there. No, I can look. That money has been credited to my account. I consider it now as mine, and I'm going to go spend a whole bunch of money. So please, credit that to my account. Now, it's an interesting word because we go back to chapter 4. We saw this word again. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was credited. That's the same word, consider, credit to him in righteousness. In other words, God said, you're righteous. It's in your account. That's now who you are. Now, Abraham... <laughs> He didn't live that out very well in some ways, but the reality was he was righteous. God credited it to him. Abraham could consider it done and live in light of that. So in our text today, we, here's what we're being commanded. Consider yourselves to be dead to sin. Believe it. Live it. Uh, one passage in Philippians says, dwell on it. Understand that it's true and spend it. Use it because it's really, really there. Look at this in Hebrews eleven nineteen. another use of the word for Abraham. He considered that God was able to raise people even from the dead. He said, I know that's true. And that's in the context of God said, sacrifice your son. So the reason he could move ahead towards that obedience is because he considered something else to be absolutely true. That even if he had to do that, God could raise him from the dead. Do you see how that connected to his obedience? Because he knew something was true, then he was able to do something else. So this is the first so what. Let me say it another way. Accept as a fact what Jesus has done for you is really true. Don't minimize it. Don't marginalize it. God has clearly stated it in, its word, in his word. It's written down. You can go read it that you are dead to sin. And you now are alive to Jesus Christ. Don't base your responses on how you feel about that or what your circumstances are. Don't wait till you can fully make sense of it. Don't, don't, don't worry that it's not systematically fitting into your understanding of life, but he says accept it as true and then act as if it's true because it is true. This is not the power of positive thinking. This is not the power of possibility thinking. This is the power of biblical thinking. That's what the Bible says about who we are. 
Now, what would this look like? Interesting story in the life of a guy named Augustine many, many, many years ago. He's a great theologian, philosopher, has a great impact on all of us as far as our doctrine. Interesting, he wrote a book. It was actually called just Confession. It says, this was my life before I came to Jesus. And he was a terrible man. I mean, he was given over to sexual sin over and over and over again. But he was wonderfully converted. And one time after his conversion, he was walking down the street and he saw one of his lovers coming towards him. And this lover says, Augustine, it's me. It's me. He quickened his pace and he turned around. And then he says over his shoulder to this one-time lover, yes, I know, but it's no longer me. See what that means? That person that did that with you is dead. There's a new person now walking away in the other direction. Here's the second so what in our text. Therefore... Don't let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its lust. So if we accept the fact that our old man is crucified with Christ and we're new, then the next step is don't let sin reign. That word reign has the idea of being a king and in control. And in that biblical context, the king had absolute control. Whatever the king said, this is what you would do. So don't let sin control you. Don't let sin sit on the throne of your life. It's interesting that the Apostle Paul doesn't say, therefore don't sin. He says, don't let sin control you. In this physical body, again, Scott touched on this last week, we have, we, we have uh, this physical body that wants what it wants, Right? And that physical body draws us to things that we shouldn't have. Somebody said sin is meeting legitimate needs in an illegitimate way. We have needs of our bodies, and sometimes those bodies lead us to do things that we shouldn't. And yet, even though we might step across that line sometimes, he's saying, but don't let it rain. You might have heard this phrase before, we cannot prevent the birds from flying over our heads. There is no need that we should let them nest in our hair. I found out this week that's actually written by Martin Luther the very first time that was said because it's been said by other people. In other words, in this life, there's always going to be the birds that tempt us and distract us and land on us and peck at us and make noise. And sometimes the birds win, but don't let the birds set up camp in your hair. Those influences should never reign in our lives. They shouldn't ro rule in our lives. They shouldn't control in our lives. So in very practical terms, what that means is you and I need to keep a short reign on those issues. And when we sin, we deal with it quickly. We confess it quickly. If we have to acknowledge it to a brother or sister, we do that quickly so that it doesn't get roots down into our lives and build a nest. That makes sense? That might mean something for you even today. If there's sin that is kind of hanging out, you say, that's got to stop. You know, um, I was in my garden a number of weeks ago. I was picking the last bit of corn, and there were some weeds in there, and I would go along and kind of kick the weed because they were small weeds. 
or I'd take a hoe and go through there real quickly. I went out in my garden just the other day. I hadn't been in there for a long time. And can I just say, the weeds rained. And so you go to kick a weed, it's not moving. So I spent some time with a shovel, digging up the weed, that at one point I could have easily moved on. We have an example in the Old Testament of King David who prayed this, Keep your servant also from willful sins that they may not, what? Rule over me. And again, direct my footsteps according to your word. Let not sin rule over me. That would be a good prayer for each of us to pray every day, amen? Father, if I sin today, I don't want it to rule. So I gotta, by your grace, root that out. Here's an assignment this afternoon. Google my heart christ's home and you'll find this beautiful little article written back in 1954 by a gentleman named robert munger how many have read it my christ heart christ's home wow just a few of you read this this afternoon because it talks it has this beautiful analogy of this person lets christ in their life and christ then goes through and kind of takes up his his uh place in every room but there's the hall closet and it stinks in the hall closet. That's all I'll tell you. Read that this afternoon just by way of application. Don't let sin reign. Here's the third so what. Do not or stop presenting the members of your body to sin as instruments of righteousness. That word members is simply meaning the parts of your body. That word instruments could be translated as tools. I love tools. I buy tools because tools help me do things. The more tools, the better. Somebody should say amen to that. Yeah. The more tools, the better. You got to have a lot of tools because you can do a lot of good things with tools. But my tools can also do some really bad things. I have a sledgehammer that could break some bones. I have a framing air nailer that could put your eye out. I have a reciprocal saw, one of my favorite tools. It could cut your hand off, or my hand. Same with my reciprocal saw, or my table saw, or my chainsaw. I love tools. You see, those tools can be given over to do bad things, but I've chosen to use those tools to do good things. And it's the same with our body, the very parts of our body, our hands, our eyes, our ears. They can be pre presented over practically to do things that are bad, or we can, we'll see this next, present them to do things that are good. That idea of presenting has the idea of yielding control over something. So then this is just practical Christianity. Because we have died to sin and live a new life, because that is actually true, then we consciously can, by the grace of God, choose to do different things that are better instead of the old things we used to do. We don't give our mouth over to telling lies. We tell the truth. We don't give our eyes over to seeing things that are uh, ungodly. We don't take our feet to places that would be sinful or lead us into sin. Fast forward to chapter 7 of Romans. Look at this same word, members. 
he says, for while we were in the flesh, in that context, it means while we were still a sinner, before we came to Christ, the sinful passions which were aroused by the law were at work where? In the members of the body to bear fruit to death. That's what we used to do. And you all remember those times, and maybe they're fading, but you used to give your bodies over to do those things that were sinful. He says, that man's now dead. Stop doing those things. Stop going to those places. There's that old children's song, Oh, be careful, little hands, what you do. Oh, be careful, little eyes, what you see. Oh, be careful, little ears, what you hear. Church, understand, that is childlike truth from deep theology. We can do that. That's why we have our children sing that song. This moves on then quickly to the fourth, so what? So then present yourselves to God as alive from the dead, your members as instruments of righteousness to God. So again, because you've been crucified with Christ, because there's now this new person, you can stop doing those things and having your body do those things, and now you can present your body to God to be instruments of righteousness. So it's not just about thinking about it. It's actually with your body now doing new things. It's not just about not doing bad things, and I think sometimes we camp there too much, stop doing all these things. If we stop doing all those things, then there's a void that needs to be filled with the new things that we do that allow us to present ourselves to God. And again, this is not rocket science. I'm not going to spend too much time here because our text next week that Scott's going to cover talks about this idea of presenting. We do things like we present ourselves to God by reading our Bible. We present ourselves to God by spending time in prayer. We present ourselves to God by being consistent in church. We present ourselves to God by being in fellowship with other believers. You see how that works? That's just practical. We present ourselves to God as instruments for righteousness by having our body engage in things that are helpful. We develop a healthy spiritual rhythm that allows us to daily present ourselves to God. We are still, in our church family and in many church families, feeling the lasting impacts of one of the things that this COVID chaos did. It got people out of their healthy spiritual rhythm. And because they weren't in their healthy spiritual rhythm, they fell into other things. See, that healthy spiritual rhythm like we're doing right now, that needs to be a part of your life because that's how you present yourself to God. It, it's what helps you commit your, the parts of your body to God in ways that move you ahead spiritually. I was thinking about this in my high school days, in my college days. I was a serious athlete. Don't mistake that for a good athlete. I was a serious athlete. What I... Lacked in being good, I tried to make up for being serious. That usually didn't work. But what that meant was there are some things I didn't do because I wanted to move in another direction, and there were some things then that I did do because that would help me in progress in whatever the particular sport was. I want to remind you that Jesus was serious 
when he lived his life. Amen? He was serious when he died. That's the life that now lives in us, being serious in that same direction that Jesus modeled for us. He has provided what we need to not let sin reign in our lives. He has provided what we need so that we can do those things that now we should do. He has provided what we need because of his serious pursuit of walking in obedience to God so that that can be us now. His life is literally, church, being lived through us. Well, that was the what and the so what. What then? One more verse. For sin shall not be master over you, for you are not under law, but under grace. The end result, the what then is, sin is not the master over you. Yes, we will continue to live with the birds flying around, pecking at us, tempting us, putting seeds of doubt or deception or accusation, but sin is not the master in our lives. That's the end result of what Jesus has done and then our application of it. I want to show you a connection back up to verse 9. Look at this. Knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, is never to die again. Look what it says. Death no longer is master over him. And then it ends with, so sin shall not be master over you. See, this is saying that the mastery over sin that we have is connected with the mastery of Jesus over death. That's why that's possible. Because Jesus has been victorious over death and we're immersed in his victory over death, then death is not the master over us and sin then is not the master over us as well. But I just want to end by highlighting this very last phrase. Why is it that sin is not the master over us? Notice what it says, for you, for sin shall not be master over you for, that means because, read it with me, you are not under law, but under grace. That's why sin is not the master over us. The reason that sin is not the master over us is because we live under grace. We don't live under the burden of trying to do all these things better. It's grace that has been given to us by Jesus, grace that is a free gift, grace that flows from all that Jesus accomplished for us in his death, burial, and resurrection. And it appears that that statement did not resonate with these first readers. Because you'll see where Scott goes next week, they say, how does that work? How does being under grace help us be victorious Christians as opposed to being under law and moving ahead and trying to do good things. That didn't make any sense to them. And the reason it didn't make any sense, and some of you are saying, I don't get it either, is because we don't understand that grace is not just a gift that he gives us. Grace is a power. Grace is a force. Grace, if I say it this, is an energy that is given to us as a gift to do the things that God has designed us to do. That's why in the Apostle Peter, 
writes this to believers many years ago. He says, grow in what? Grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. They're connected. Grow in the grace that is fully revealed in what Jesus Christ has done for you. Grow in that. Understand it. Understand it's not just a gift that he gives us so we can be saved, but it's a power that is extended to us so that we can be victorious in what Jesus Christ has done for us. That's why the Apostle Paul writes to the church at Corinth, and he has said to me, my grace is sufficient for you. Here's what Jesus said to the Apostle Paul when he was really struggling. He says, my grace, my grace in you is powerful enough so that you can move ahead. Notice the connection between my grace is sufficient for you for power. Grace and power are connected, church. Maybe we can make that connection today. It's not just a free gift that we enjoy. It is a power that we experience. We live as ones who have been recipients of the most lavish, unbelievable, continual grace that anybody has ever known. It's the only place to experience it by God is through Jesus. And we're continuing day by day by day to receive his unmerited grace, his unmerited favor, his extravagant grace, as the song says, the amazing grace. Grace is not just what saves us. Understand, grace is what sustains us. Grace is what empowers us. It seems like there's a toxic gas that floats around Christian churches. It's this toxic message that can come from pulpits sometimes and could easily come out of this text to send the people on and say, you guys just got to work harder at it. You got to try harder. You got to say no more. You got to do more good things. That thinking is toxic. Understand, while there are things we should do and there are things we shouldn't do, None of that is possible without the grace of God being fully experienced by us and the power that comes through that. The gospel is good news, amen? The gospel is a good news of grace that we need every day to experience all that God has desired for us. I don't know where all of you are right now spiritually. If you've experienced the grace of God for that initial saving power, but I'm praying, as I always pray, as many people are praying, that God would work in you even as we sing these songs. And maybe for some of you, maybe most of you are already believers. So I'm just going to pray as we sing that you would, again, just turn it over to God, whatever that struggle is, whatever the battle is right now, that your, the grace that he wants to give you would be experienced even as you leave this place. So our brothers and sisters are going to come lead us in some songs. Let's pray together before we sing. Father, we just want to say thank you again. That is not dependent on us and never has been. We want to say thank you again that in your great wisdom and in your great love, you made a way that, uh, first of all, we could be reconciled to you. 
And not just that, we can be empowered by you to live different lives. So even as we sing, I pray that the truth of what Jesus Christ has done for us would just go a bit deeper, that we could be encouraged, even experience that, that, even that sense of enablement that we need. Father, keep out of our minds that somehow we have to do anything all by ourselves to be better for you. But instead, Father, would you root in us this wonderful truth that you've done all that you need to do, that we could be all that we need to be before you. And then we could live in that. So that, Jesus, you get all the glory 